excited. Richard, let's get to know you. <laughs> You're going to sound so good. Just start talking. It sounds so good yeah, when you talk. Um, thank you for having me. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. You've had some uh, great guests recently, I have to say, so I'm in uh, very good company. You are, definitely. Yeah. No pressure. No. So tell me, where did it all begin? You know, when <laughs> did uh, where were you born? Uh, so I was born in London and someone who loved the city grew up at a time when it didn't feel like the city is today. So it has radically changed since I was a teenager a long time ago. I won't specify when, yeah. but uh, it feels like a much more multicultural city. When I was growing up as a kid in the eighties, um, you traveled on the London underground and, you know, it was mostly white faces English language is spoken everywhere now. It's a sea of different nationalities, cultures, and you very rarely hear English being spoken actually on the London Underground. It's such a, a melting pot of different cultures and people, and it's an incredibly eclectic city. So I think it's a richer place for it. So I grew up in central London, pretty much. I was born in the old Middlesex Hospital, which uh, if anyone knows London, uh, is very close to Selfridges Department Store near Regent Street. And... I just loved living there. It was a great place to live. I lived. I grew up in a small place called Maida Vale, which uh, most people won't know. Most people from London don't know, but it's very near to Abbey Road Studios, Lord's Cricket Ground. So it's right kind of in the heart of London. And is it a, a good neighborhood, or was it upper class, middle class, lower um, class? Like how you know, London is such an interesting city insofar as um, rich, uh, middle income, uh, not so rich, uh, all live cheek to jail. So uh, we lived opposite a big, what would be called a council estate, you know, built, built by the local authority. And, you know, there were some rougher parts of the neighborhood. I remember actually, um, famously, there was a school down the road, a pretty rough school where actually the headmaster was, was stabbed to death. And it, it was a huge news story at the time. This was five minutes away from where I lived. Yeah, by the students? By the students, yeah, by mm -hmm. a student. Um, and, but it didn't feel unsafe. You know, London is a city that is such a popular city that you never feel unsafe walking around at any time of the day. I certainly didn't. Um, so it would be, um, I, I suppose a more affluent neighborhood, but like I said, a real diversity and mix of, of different income levels throughout, throughout that part of London. Yeah. Did you like growing up there? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, we were, we lived in a, again, times have definitely changed there, but we lived in a, a house. I'm one of four kids. Um, and we would, we didn't have much outside space. We had a sort of tiny back garden and a little alleyway between the two houses. And my brother and I would play cricket for hours at a time, bowling at each other. We'd play soccer <laughs> there. I mean, the, um, my parents would uh, kill me for probably admitting this for the first time, but I, you know, we'd consistently smash the next door neighbor's windows with the soccer ball <laughs> and to blame someone else saying maybe a bird flew into it. I don't know, but, um, no, it was a very happy time and I had a very happy childhood and, um, very close to my siblings and, uh, we we had a very grounded, very um, happy childhood growing up in Maidaville. Were you always into sports? You're such a fit guy. I imagine you were. Yeah, I, I loved playing sports school. Um, I was a reasonably good soccer player, a much less proficient cricket player and an even worse rugby player. But I played them all and, and loved playing them and uh, loved sport. But sport's an interesting an interesting thing because I think it, it teaches you so much in life. And yet in the UK, particularly when you compare it to say Canada, it's not as well thought of. It's not given as much time on the curriculum. And so we would play sport a couple of times a week and we weren't 
really given a lot of time to practice sport. It was basically you had one practice session, then you played your game, whatever sport that was at the weekends. Um, but I think that, you know, growing up, say in somewhere like Canada, where sport is so imbued into everything that, that people do, I think that that's a real missing link in the UK where it teaches you so many things about adversity, about losing, about winning. Teamwork. Uh, teamwork, um, being an individual, but being part of a bigger collective and working together and so many life skills that I think that's one of the things that is truly lacking in, in the UK, actually, when it comes to education. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Tell me about your grandpappy. Yeah. Um, I, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, my mum's dad, um, was a fascinating guy. He was one of many children who grew up, um, just before the war started in Europe. My, a lot of my family is from Eastern Europe and, um, my, my background is, um, a Jewish family for, for many, many generations, but he moved, um, to London from what was the old Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, in 19, 41, I think it was just as that sort of real outbreak of the war happened. And he jumped on a train and Nazi soldiers standing in front of the guy in front of him. He said he was Jewish. He was taken out of the line, beaten and God knows what happened to him. But my grandfather managed to get to London, didn't speak any English at all. And he, uh, taught himself to be a tailor, grew up, um, with limited skills on a farm in sort of rural Czechoslovakia, um, built up a, a very successful menswear business, built up a big property portfolio in London as well and was super successful. So someone that I very much looked up to when I was a kid growing up, taught me a lot of great life lessons and was just a fascinating character, um, but didn't talk much about his background and the war. And he lost a lot of siblings during the Holocaust. And, uh, and so for me, there was that immediacy of that lineage back to that time, which for a lot of people seems like, you know, ancient history. So amazing guy, uh, extraordinary temper, uh, very temperamental, <laughs> didn't speak very good English until the day he died, but was a fascinating guy. And I learned a lot from him. Yeah. He was around, he was in, your he was, he was very much around. Yeah. 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 Cool. We, um, you know, big tradition in Jewish families is to gather around a dinner table with people on a Friday evening and to celebrate. And actually probably something that we've lost a bit today, you know, everyone's scrolling through their phones and no one's really that present, but it was an opportunity during the course of a week to sit down with family members and just talk about what had happened in the week, you know, without any distractions, which is a really nice time um, in my life. And, and I, in many ways, miss that from, you know, now being elsewhere and, and yeah. scattered throughout the world with my family. Yeah. When did you start in real estate? Yeah, again, this is going to age me. Um, this is well, my, where, what was your first real estate job? Yeah. So I started off with a, um, a UK estate agency called Savills. They're one of the more established agencies. Um, 60,000 odd staff around the world across many different countries. Um, I sort of stumbled into it like a lot of people in real estate. I didn't think it was necessarily my calling or my vocation in life, but um, I'd seen successful property people in commercial and residential and thought I'd just give it a go and sent off my CV speculatively, not knowing the scale of this company. And I started off in resale selling historic properties in, in a part of Northwest London, um, Hampstead, that's it's very old and, you know, Keats lived there and all these great poets from many centuries ago. And, uh, I realized that I was not very good at selling and, uh, but loved design and loved consultancy and loved pre-sales particularly. So I was very keen to move my career on. I was given an opportunity by one of my first mentors in the business, who was a big advocate for me to move into their central London office, which at the time was in Mayfair in central London and was thrown in at the deep end. 
there was a small consultancy team at the time. I think it, we were one of, I was one of four people within that team and was thrown into some extraordinary projects at the time. I mean, the scale of which you don't really see things like the London's Olympic Village. I was doing a lot of the financial an analysis on that and working out how we phased a huge project like that before the games which, in 2012. The Olympic Village? Yeah, the Olympic Village in London. That, that was in 2012? Yeah, in 2012. We were working on it from 2005. You know, it was a very long uh, germination period, but was a fascinating project because... It was a, such a huge scale project, thousands of homes being phased over multiple, multiple years. So I really enjoyed being thrown in at the deep end and, and very much having to learn on your feet at the time. So that was, that yeah. was great fun. Yeah, there it is there. It's massive. Yeah, just huge, huge project. And uh, what came after that? Um, a, a series of, of different scale projects. Um, so I, again, was incredibly lucky. I don't think I probably understood at the time I was 23, 24 years old when I was starting my career there. And the scale of what we were doing, I mean, you, you go from the extreme scale of, you know, the Olympic Village. And I worked on a project called Greenwich Peninsula by the O2 Dome, which was 11,500 residential units. And again, multiple phases to wow. incredibly high-end developments like One Hyde Park. Um, the time was the most expensive residential development in the world. And just for context for people, um, so... At uh, the time we were selling, it was around about 6,000 or so pounds per square foot. Um, well, we're talking close to $10,000 Canadian per square foot. And this was a long time ago. This would have been in 2007, just before the kind of financial crisis hit. So at the time we were selling, you know, multi-million dollar homes to incredibly wealthy multi and, and multi-millionaires and certainly billionaires. Um, that's amazing. So many people think of Vancouver real estate as so expensive. But. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, for someone growing up in London, um, I would say that Vancouver real estate clearly is very expensive compared to the rest of Canada. But actually, if you put it on a global context, it's actually relatively good value. Um, one of the other companies I worked for in London uh, was a company called Knight Frank. They produce something called the Wealth Report every year, which is a really interesting publication, which looks at ostensibly property. Um, but one of their great infographics is around what 1 million US dollars buys you in the world. And, you know, people think Vancouver is expensive. You should look at what, you know, a million US, which is about 1.35, 1.375 Canadian buys you. Monaco, 183 square feet. You know, Hong Kong, 226 square feet. <laughs> New York, 355. London, 365. Um, you know, there are multiple cities throughout the world. Shanghai, Tokyo, Miami, Berlin, Sydney, Dubai. What do they peg Vancouver at? Well, I, I mean, they don't because it's so low down on the list. It really? doesn't, doesn't really feature. But I, I mean, if you look probably at what we would ostensibly call kind of prime real estate here, um, and, you know, the, you can debate which areas of Vancouver they are, but let's just say, you know, call Yale Town one of the prime, more prime areas. You could pick up a three-bedroom townhome, you know, Bosa, Mondrian 2, you know, 20 years old, and, um, you know, 1,300 square feet, roughly 1.375, something like that, million really? dollars. So, you know, you think, so you think, well, that buys you. They're not quoting like the latest, uh, newest pre-sale prices? No, it at would averages. be, yeah, averages yeah. across like a primary, and that will be some pre-sale and, and some existing as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, some of the more expensive real estate and resale, uh, sorry, pre-sale um, projects that we see now, the benchmark is kind of $3,000 a square foot. You think of things like Ambleside and, and 1515 by Bosa, you know, they're, they're trying to hit that watermark or above it. Um, but, you know, I lived in an apartment in London of 440 square feet um, for many years. Um, I like? Uh, you got to be a minimalist. 
<laughs> you certainly do. Um, you can't have many guests over. It's one in, one out. Um, so uh, you could touch the walls uh, from side to side, and I'm not. I'm certainly not your height, Cam. So um, you could really touch them. Uh, it's certainly down the as you came in. Yeah, the corridors were that narrow. <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, it was difficult. I mean, I, li I lived there with what was at the time my girlfriend is now my wife and, and a dog as well. So quite how we didn't kill each other, I'm not sure, but so we survived. Um, what kind of dog? Uh, we had a Shih Tzu Maltese um, rescue dog. Yeah. Very crazy old dog. We got him um, when we lived in, in Sydney in Australia later on in our lives and, and, and then brought him over here and, and sadly he passed away about a year ago. Um, yeah. It was a great dog. But um, yeah, that was, a t that was a tiny apartment in London. And I think back to that, um, you know, you, it's interesting because the, a big debate I think in Vancouver right now is, you know, where you live. And if you're a Vancouverite, you know, it feels like you have, you know, it's your inalienable right to live in Vancouver. And I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I mean, I was a born and bred Londoner. I grew up in central London, as we've discussed. And I didn't feel it was my birthright to live there, you know, if yeah. I could afford to. And I was lucky that I was given some help by my parents. But my choice was live in 440 square feet right in the heart of London. So I live just south of the River Thames by Tate Modern. Um, near London, near Bankside and Shakespeare's Globe and, and a great part of London, you know, fantastic. So much going on and Borough Market and lots of great places to to go out and, and enjoy life. Um, but, you know, that I could have moved out of London. I could have moved to a, a suburb of London and, and, and had a, a much bigger home, yeah. twice, three times that size. But I look at what I was able to afford to buy there. And it's interesting because I, I live in Kitsilano in Vancouver and I, it's pretty much double the space now that I have in Kitsilano for the equivalent of what I had in London. So people say, well, it's crazy how expensive Vancouver is. Well, not on a global scale, not yeah. if you look at all these other great cities. So I think it's, uh, you know, context is a wonderful thing. And I understand how real estate has got so delineated from what people recognize as, you know, the real estate values 10, 20 years ago in Vancouver, but on a global scale, we're still pretty good value. We're definitely on a global scale. Yeah. It's hard for us, the local yokels to remember that, but people like you have such a better perspective, like you say. Yeah. And your experience is anecdotal, but it's very personal. Like you're literally yeah. from 440 to 900 and yeah. it's pretty much, yeah. pretty much exactly double. So you said you lived with Liz in, in London. Yeah, I did. So how did you meet her? She was doing her third degree. Not, not the first second, just the third. What were her first two? <laughs> so she did, um, she did an HR degree. Um, she did a um, politics degree. She did politics at Western and she did her HR degree at Concordia in Montreal. And then she was doing a law degree at Kingston University in London. That's where I met her. Um, out on a night out in a pub in London. <laughs> couldn't, be, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, uh, couldn't be more of a London story. Yeah. Um, I met her. Uh, we exchanged numbers. Uh, I was leaving to go, I think the night after or the day after to Tokyo in Japan. And, uh, and I said, I'll call you when I get back. She said, well, never going to see this guy again, yeah. you know, some drunk idiot trying to hit on me. And, uh, and she was on a date two weeks later and got this text message of I'm back. No let's, way. let's meet up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I guess the rest is history, but, uh, she, um, it was an interesting relationship because it was very much long distance as far as she lived in London. But at the time I was working for another real estate company agency called Knight Frank in London. And I'd been with them for five years at that stage, but they'd offered me the opportunity to move to Melbourne with them to work on a branded residences project um, in downtown Melbourne, um, which sadly never got built. But um, I was consulting on that for a year and I accepted the role um, with Liz in our apartment in London. And I said, you know, she said to me at the time, famously, I always tease her about it. Um, 
you know, I just don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and I said, it is going to work because I'm determined it works. And, you know, if I move to Melbourne, it's on the basis that, you know, we continue this and, and see what happens and no guarantee of anything. And, and so off I went to Melbourne and, and we did this kind of crazy commute every six weeks. I would come back to London. She would, she would come on her study leave to Australia and, and somehow we kind of cobbled it together and, and it worked. And, and halfway through, um, that, uh, that journey in Melbourne, I said, let's go on vacation. Let's meet somewhere halfway. Um, and she got the better deal. We went to India and it was a much longer trip from Melbourne at the time, but we met, um, in India and, and I proposed to her, um, a bit cliche, but by the Taj Mahal, um, got down on one knee, um, surrounded by tourists, of course, and, and lots of noise and things like that. It wasn't very secluded, but it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. And, and then I, I then moved to Sydney with Knight Frank to head up their project marketing team. And that's when, um, she had, she was sort of finishing her course in London and then moved permanently to Sydney. And then we started living together, but yeah, for, a, for, a good, for a good part. Um, so I was in Sydney for two years. Um, oh. or we were in Sydney for two years. Um, it was great. We might still be there today if it wasn't for visa issues. You know, it's very difficult to get a visa in Australia. The government doesn't uh, look too kindly on certain uh, industries, real estate being one of them. So there was no ability to stay beyond the three years that I was there. How so, long was your long distance part of your relationship? Um, it's probably about, probably about 13, 14 months of, of, of doing that because actually she, she wasn't there in Sydney for the first part. She came a, a little bit after I was there, I think about three months after I went to Sydney. So it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. But, you know, I, I said to her at the time, um, you know, we've just got to be really disciplined about when we speak to one another, given the time distance and the, the travel distance away from one another, you just got to be disciplined about connecting, you know, twice a day when they're up and, and they're going to bed and, and you just sort of make it work if you yeah. want to. There's a good, I look in life, there's always good reasons for things not to work and good excuses for it to work as well. If you can make it work, you should. That was my experience too. I, I don't know if I told you how I met my wife. No. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, she was, uh, I was invited to a party by my ex-girlfriend who was sleeping with one of my best friends at the time. <laughs> it was like, no every, idea. every bone in my body was like, I don't know, don't go to this party. This is a terrible idea. But my ego wanted to, uh, I wanted to show them that I was above it and I didn't care and we could all still hang out and it was fine. It was totally fine. Don't worry about yeah. it. Uh, anyways, so I went and, uh, it was super awkward and, uh, you know, I probably was drinking heavily just to deal with it and, and thinking, well, this blows. So what, what, what's going to happen here? This good. And then I noticed, um, this, this girl walk into this party and this was at a time in the early two thousands when fashion was such that everybody in Yaletown, it was a party in Yaletown. Uh, and it was a good party. I met, uh, the rock that night and Johnny Knoxville, like it was a pretty wild pretty, party, pretty good party, but still it was awkward. And then I saw this girl walk in wearing all white, uh, a long white dress with white shoes at a time when everyone else was wearing black. And I was, it was just like, la, like the <laughs> angels are singing. And I'm like, holy cow, she looks amazing. And, uh, and so I was very much attracted to her right away. And and she was having a lot of fun with her friends and uh, dancing like nobody was watching. And I thought it was all very cool. Um, and I was making my way over to introduce myself. And uh, and I and I I was too late. There was a guy ahead of me who who was beating me to the punch, so to speak. And he was carrying over two drinks. And I was like, ah, oh, bastard! He's got the drinks. I have no drinks. He's ten steps ahead of me. I was like, oh well. Um, and then as he approached, she did a 
big spin and with the back of her hand smashed both drinks out of his hand accidentally (laughs) and they went flying and she didn't even notice. She just sort of kept dancing and he looked at her and looked down at the floor at the drinks and just sort of shrugged his shoulders and walked off the dance floor. And I thought it was amazing. So I waited and eventually we met and we danced and, uh, and then that night, um, we went to Kit's beach and just kind of like, did cartwheels and just watched the sunrise and had like, you know, just chatted and had like quite an amazing night, but it was never for real because she was leaving for medical school in Toronto in two weeks. Um, so that was just fun person to meet, you know, we kissed a little bit on a log on the beach and that was, that was going to be it. So, uh, we're in a cab going to my place. I'm of course trying to talk her to, you know, coming over. She was not interested, and she denies it was because we stopped by the bank machine on the way to, so I could pick up cash and the bank machine was closed. Um, I swear because I couldn't get any cash out. <laughs> I was like, can you pay for the cab? And she's like, yeah, I got it, buddy. Don't worry. <laughs> so we made it to my place and, uh, and I'm hopping out. She's not coming in. Ask her for her number. She says it too quickly. I think it's fake. I'm like, oh, I'll put it in my phone anyway. And I go to put my phone in and my phone dies. Like just as I'm putting it in, I'm like, ah, so I go inside still a little bit drunk, I think, and, uh, scratch it down on a piece of paper and go to sleep. And I probably got it wrong. But the next day I wake up thinking about her and I tried the number and it actually worked. And I'm like, it was a nice conversation, you know, so nice to meet you. Um, have a nice life. I wish I'd met you sooner. And a couple of nights later, I was sitting with my roommate. Brad Lawton, famous photographer now. Uh, and he was watching his favorite television show, the antique roadhouse or road show. Mm. And, uh, I hate it. And I'm like, let's do something else. He's like, what? And, he's, and he said, let's go for a beer. I'm like a beer. Like I'm kind of, I was kind of a binge drinker, like going for a beer. Wasn't like necessarily my favorite thing to do. We'd actually never done it. Um, but I said, okay, anything else? We live two blocks from a restaurant called the whip. We walked up to the restaurant and we sat down at a beer and it was great. We were just chatting, having a beer, uh, to someone like you from London. It's a very familiar thing to do, but you know, it wasn't my habit, but it was great. And it got better when I looked over and I could see like across four or five tables and I could see this big smile looking at me and waving. And it was Lisa, like all that she lived in Shaughnessy or she was staying with her parents at the time there. And here she was on the East side of Vancouver where I was. And it was just a coincidence. And we ended up putting our tables together. Um, and having lots of laughs, went back to my place and smoked a joint and, and just sort of hung out on, on our outdoor patio, held hands under the blankets. And anyway, the next sort of 10 days were, were magical, but then she was gone. Um, well, actually I was leaving to Vegas on a stag party. I'm walking down the gangplank to the plane and she's driven me to the airport. And it was so awkward. I hopped out of the car. Basically, we like awkwardly high-fived, have a nice life. It was just so bad. And I'm walking down the gangplank and I'm turning off my phone. And this little voice to my shoulder says, you are fucking up, man. This is like, you are making a huge mistake right now. That was bullshit. And so I, I didn't turn off my phone and I called her thinking she probably hasn't made it back home. Maybe I'll try and catch her. Anyway, she answered. And I told her everything I said on the curb was bullshit. I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope we somehow figure this out. I hope we keep in touch and I hope something happens. I think you're amazing. And she said, I feel the same way. And then uh, it was a year apart of long distance and every reason for it not to work. Um, And 
you know, all of the temptations and all of the, the reasons to sort of screw it up and it's just easy not to call. And then it fades away so easily, but what a great way to fall in love with someone I found, because for me, I was, I didn't know it at the time, but I realized after that I was addicted to sex and companionship that comes in sort of like intense first parts of relationships. And then when you take those two things out of the equation, what are you left with? A phone call, you know, maybe scheduled, like you're saying, and, and you talk and you talk about life and what happened that day and funny stories from your past, you tell jokes and, and if you connect that strongly under those circumstances, I think it's a connection that could last and survive a lifetime. Yeah. I love that. And it's testament to the fact that everyone gives you guidance about the way life should work and will work. But actually, you can forge your own path. Absolutely. And it, whether it comes to love or your relationships with your family or your career yeah. or anything, there's not a preordained path for you, I don't think. And so you can write your own story. So I love that. It just is, uh, it validates that, you know, you shouldn't ever think that things are gone forever or that you can't resurrect something. And if you really want something that badly, you can somehow make it work. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a modern guy, modern thinker. Like you're not, uh, uh, you guys don't have any kids. No. No, no intentions, no plans. Who knows? Who knows? Um, you know, Liz is 10 years younger than I am. So, uh, um, dirty old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't mention that often. Um, cause I look so young. How old but, are you? Uh, so I am, I was born in 1979. So I will be, uh, well, I am 43. Um, and, uh, and she, yeah, she's a decade younger, but so it's not something that we intend to do, but you never know things change. And, yeah. you know, I think when, you know, your girlfriends start having babies and, you know, siblings start having babies, I think, um, it can sometimes change your mind about things, but we'll see. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty relaxed about if it goes either way. Yeah. Plus you're vegan. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. Yes. Uh, yeah. Can vegan people make babies the same as regular people? Uh, you know what? I, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll come back to you on that one. Uh, I'm just joking. How do you do it, man? How do you, uh, like you are jacked. You're such a fit guy. You run, you work out, you look amazing and you eat no milk or dairy products at all. Yeah. It was just something I, um, decided to do many years ago. I think it's six or seven years now. Um, just for sort of a bit of a health kick, I guess. Um, I think like a lot of people, you know, we all caffeinate our way through the day. We all have that kind of lethargy mid-afternoon and, and just feeling like my sleep wasn't that regular and would this help? And I found, um, you know, having a plant-based diet has worked really well for me. So, you know, I think it's individual. I'm not one of those people who says you should eat this way or that way. For me, it works really well. So I, I love it and uh, I can certainly espouse the diet, but I, you know, it's whatever works for, for you. For I you. think you're really successful because you are very disciplined. Would you say that's true? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty disciplined. You obviously work out a lot. You yeah, I like, yeah, I mean, I, I love working out. I think for me, it's always been part of my DNA. Um, I, I started going to the gym when I was about 14 or 15 years old. Um, and didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but do you, you realize, I think that you, you do get more energy from expending energy, ironically. And you get men better mental clarity. I think you sleep better. I think you have a more positive attitude in life generally. I think it's it's a really good countenance to being a bit down in the dumps if ever you're having a tough day. Actually, the best thing you can do is go and just get some fresh air. It doesn't need to be a 20-mile run around the seawall. It can just be a walk or a bike ride or something else um, with a partner or with friends. I think just being active is critically important. And I think that... 
you're going for a little bit of a tangent, but I think if you look at, at the world and the health of people in the world, you know, diet is certainly a big part of it, but exercise as well. And just, you know, getting out there and getting some fresh air occasionally. I think we're often stymied by a much more sedentary lifestyle than our parents and grandparents live. So the more we can get out and exercise and work out, the better. Yeah, no doubt. And your, your wife is a beast of an athlete, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she puts us all to shame and she, what, um, tell us what, remind me what she, did. well, she was, uh, she was, uh, an athlete who represented Canada in a couple of sports. She played, um, youth rugby for Canada, but she also represented Canada, um, in wrestling and she was a Canadian national champion. And dare I say, it, if it wasn't such a huge toll on her body as a young woman, I think she would have gone very much further. Um, you know, the, the, the mental discipline, let alone the physical exhaustion, um, that you put your body through when you're wrestling. I mean, you know, you're cutting weight and having to get down to a, a very, very low weight class. So she'll regale you with stories of sitting in saunas for two days at a time with black garbage bags around her and not drinking any water just to get down to where, I mean, it's so bad for your body. And I have to say that um, it's not a very sensible way to lead your life. Um, you know, they would weigh in for a competition the night before and, and, you know, she would try and refuel that evening for a, a morning, um, bout and, you know, you just can't in that short period of time. You know, if you look at boxes, they're obviously getting down to an extraordinarily low weight and, and jump at jockeys as well, but the boxes have 24 hours to kind of refuel. Um, the wrestlers don't they have a very short period of time. So she put her body through a lot. And I think given the amount of practice she was doing a day, two, three times a day for hours and hours, you know, rolling around the mat, I think uh, in the end she found it wasn't for her. And also she was honestly, I mean, she's so bright. Um, I think, you know, you have a finite career as an elite athlete and you have to think about the next 50 years beyond that. So I think for a lot of people, it's what's next. And some of them don't have a plan, but she always did. She's, you know, so bright, so driven and that she was always going to do something, um, that was successful whenever she did. So she decided sport was not for her in the end. Yeah. Amazing. She got three degrees and represented Canada yeah. in two different yeah, sports. I, mean, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know why she married me, but there you go. <laughs> wow. You must be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats, man. Thanks. Yeah, she's awesome. I enjoyed yeah, being here. She's great. Where else have you worked? Melbourne, London? Yeah, I worked in Dubai in between. Um, so it started off um, sort of taking a step back, I guess. So um, Savile's in London for five years and until 2008. And then... Um, you know, I worked at a time when the market just stopped overnight. You know, I think for a lot of people, I think the financial crisis here was was slightly different uh, compared to lots of other major capitals around the world, particularly in London. Um, you know, we were having a great run of it. We would be out in the pub most days celebrating what a great success we were having on a project and things were going swimmingly. And then, you know, all of all of it crashed around our, our, our eyes. And I was working in central London at the time, as I said, and um, there was the first wrong on a bank in, in the UK for over a hundred years. You know, we saw, I saw very day-to-day -day people queuing up to get their money out of a bank. It was kind of quite an extraordinary experience for someone young and early on in their career. And it was obviously a huge downturn. Um, we were told at the time, I was on a relatively modest salary, but with a, a reasonable bonus that no bonuses for two years, like, you're not, none of you are getting bonuses for two years. So we kind of looked around and thought the party had stopped um, and we were standing there with too few chairs to sit on. And so I looked around and I had university friends that had moved to Dubai and swore I'd never go there, even though I'd gone on vacation once. Um, but 
fast forward to September 2008 and and there I was and I was lucky I was introduced to um, a really bright Aussie guy who um, was working at a company called or developer rather called Nakil um, which stands for Palm in Arabic and they built the Palm Islands for anyone who knows Dubai and I was working on a project that was supposed to be from a strip of sand in the desert um, twice the size of Hong Kong Island in five years which was not ever going to happen, but it was a project called Dubai Waterfront. Um, I was working at Nikhil for over a year and a half, um, but they went bust to the tune of two and a half billion US dollars. And, and bear in mind, this was a government company, so they were gifted the land effectively. And it was, again, uh, that was a really interesting and quite um, formative part of my career insofar as I worked with so many different nationalities. You had Dutch engineers, you had German architects, you had um, quantity surveyors from Italy. You know, you had, it was a real m- melting pot of different nationalities and cultures and different age groups. I'd come from a very white, middle-class, very established, old estate agency in London to what was um, a young company. Uh, you know, you were with Emirati locals and um, it was a, uh, it was a great experience, but um, I was being paid disproportionately high number for what for my experience at the time because they were having to bring in a huge amount of overseas talent. Um, the, Emirati, the Emirati population is tiny. It oh. represents about 10% of the local population. You're either, there's a real disparity in that society. You're either incredibly wealthy or not particularly wealthy. And a lot of the potentially wealthy elites are sent over to the US, UK, to the top universities. And they're the educated ones, but they don't want to stay there. They want to go elsewhere. They want to go to Europe. They want to go to the US. They want to come here. So given that there was such a low proportion of active experts in what is still a relatively young country you know it was a it was a pearl fishing um backwater in the 70s to what it is today which is a a sort of burgeoning population of about three million in the uae itself and uh how did that happen well i think that there was the oil wealth obviously um from abu dhabi particularly but why did it centralize there i think that they recognized that um it sits very well between East and West. So it kind of sits in the middle of the world. If you want to trade with the East and trade with the West, it's in a really nice time zone. So you get a huge, you have access to both sides of the world um, very readily. And I think they were very smart and that they understood that oil would run out eventually, right? They'd made all that money in the seventies and they thought, well, what's next? So why don't we create a destination in the Middle East, which didn't exist at the time and has been replicated many times over by the Saudis and others. But the Dubai government particularly was very aware of bringing in the marquee hotel brands and bringing in the huge destination restaurants, you know, and and they created and water parks. And so they created a bit of a Disneyland in the desert and it's, mm. it's worked and they, you know, huge amounts of tourism each year, lots of, lots and lots of expats coming in. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interest. It's a very interesting place insofar as you do meet cultures and nationalities from all over the world. And it's certainly a much more secular part of the Middle East than other cities and areas. If you go to Riyadh as a woman, you would be absolutely have to cover up. Whereas actually there, it was um, a lot more open to bars, restaurants, clubs, alcohol is served in certain designated areas. Um, and there are restrictions. I mean, as a, as a, British expat living there, I had to get a license to have liquor in my own home. Um, and, you know, you were only allowed to be drinking in certain designated places. But I think the rules are significantly relaxed compared to lots of other more religious parts of the Middle East. And the the project you were working on, was it the waterfront? The yeah, palm? so Dubai waterfront um, never got built. Um, the the other palms were built in Jebel Ali and, and certainly um, 
uh, you know, significant developments in terms of big townhouses, et cetera, but they, they just never got around to it. And I think they, they came back. Nikhil is an existing company now, but were in financial dire straits for many, many years after 2008 and uh, took many years to recover. But again, because they were gifted swathes of land, there's no reason for them not to be one of the biggest developers. Um, I was, uh, uh, the whole team was made redundant and ever so when you go bust this year and have two and a half billion dollars. So I joined another big developer, Imar, uh, who built the world's tallest tower, the Burj Khalifa, um, and worked on their projects in what was the more established part of Dubai. So the downtown core, um, I think that the Dubai mall is still the world's largest mall. I'll need to, uh, Nick to my left to fact check that, but, uh, um, they were building um, much higher caliber homes than Nikhil. And, um, you know, the Armani Casa Hotel is within um, the Burj Khalifa. They were building some really beautiful ta- townhomes in downtown Dubai and have the Dubai Mall, et cetera. So that was a, a really interesting time to be selling um, sort of higher value projects at the time. Um, my intention was to be there during the financial crisis and kind of see it out really, you know, get some great experience, earn lots of money, have fun. So a single youngish guy at the time, um, enjoy my life, um, you know, have a nice car, all that kind of stuff that you probably think is what you want in life as a young 20 something. And, uh, uh, I then was intending to come back sort of two or three years later. I did have a month before I came back. I think I was working for six weeks. I was selling armored vehicles. It's a little known fact. So, um, the, the market was still pretty appalling by 2010, 2011. It hadn't recovered in Dubai. And I was sort of scratching around to earn a bit of money and, and had one of those, you know, sort of slightly drunken conversations with some random person in, in a bar. And, and they say, oh, I work for this company and we uh, we sell armoured vehicles. I said, well, what do you mean? Do you sell tanks? He said, no, no, no. What we do is we take a standard vehicle like a Toyota Land Cruiser and we, we strip it out and we armour it from the inside and we jack up the suspension because you add about a tonne of weights to what is a two-tonne vehicle. And we send them out to Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. I, was, I was like, okay. And uh, he said, you know, you, you sell 10 vehicles, you'll, you'll earn 10,000 US dollars. And I said, okay, that's kind of what I'm earning in six months at the moment. I'm not selling any homes. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I worked for this kind of crazy Russian guy who used to get us into the <laughs> office and, and sort of ber- berate us, shout at us for how useless we were at selling these armored vehicles <laughs> to these NGOs in Iraq at the time. And uh, so I did that for about six weeks, two months. And um and then thought, what am I doing with my life? I'm selling armored vehicles to yeah. these companies in Iraq. And yeah, so I, I, that was the point at which I said, look, it's time to go back. And that was 2011, early 2011. And that's when I went back. And um, there's only really four or five agencies in London, big agencies though. Um, and I would say probably because my experience had been sort of prime London, sort of the top end of the market, there was only really a couple of agencies that you really work for in the Savills and Knight Frank. And, I, and I'd worked at Savills and... Um, I'd sort of moved on from that. And so I applied to Knight Frank. I didn't know the team there. So I just picked up the phone um, and called the most senior person there. I just said, hi, looking for a job. He said, who are you? Um, and I managed, don't know how, to get a um, an interview with them a few days later and somehow managed to get a job there. And again, that was... That was great because I'd been out of the market for a, for a, for a good while, um, but it felt like I was getting straight back into it. And given my experience of growing up in London and working in real estate in London, it was quite an easy transition to get back into to London yeah. real estate. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, um, worked there and worked on some f- fun projects as well at Night Frank. You've worked all over, man. It's uh, it's amazing. In the, in the, it's amazing uh, your journey and the companies you've worked for are so big. 
Yeah. I, I think I've, I know every company name that you've mentioned so far. It's, it's, it's an odd trajectory though, because I think for a lot of people, they start small and, and they want to get bigger. And whether that's a law firm or a tech company, you know, you start at a small place and you want to end up at Google or you are a law firm and you want to end up at the biggest law practices in the world. I kind of done the other way. I started off with a company of 60,000 staff across, you know, multiple, multiple countries and then went to Knight Frank and you know, tens of thousands of people as well across multiple countries and across all all different um, jurisdictions all over the world. And uh, and I've ended up, you know, here in Vancouver working, you know, with you at Key and, you know, we're, we're a relatively small company. But I, I actually, I think for a lot of people, you, you feel like the pedestal of your career is working big, but actually I found it's working smaller. You know, you're more nimble, uh, you can make decisions quicker. There isn't a hierarchy of different structures of committee meetings and meetings upon meetings and decision-making that takes forever. I think there's a nimbleness to working smaller and it feels more entrepreneurial as well when you're working in a smaller company. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I am sitting opposite my boss, so I have to say pretty nice things here. So uh, what about the projects though? You've worked on huge projects. What's, yes. what's the difference between these massive projects you've worked on and, and a typical project for us, which is, you know, a couple of towers. And yeah. Um, it's time and market. Um, you know, the real estate market in Dubai, in Australia, particularly Sydney and here would be pretty similar insofar as it's about velocity of sale for most people. That's the measure of success. So bring it to market, sell it as quickly as possible, move on. I think in London, you know, there aren't the restrictions of your pre-sale target. It's funded in a different way. Uh, a, lot, a lot of it is debt from the developers themselves. So they've got a lot more skin in the game. And that's what it used to be here. It yeah. Underwriting. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think this is a newer phenomenon, certainly in Vancouver, of trying to sell out a tower within a weekend, which obviously we know now today where the market is, is, is not happening. But in London, we would work on a a typical tower of say 300 condos, you know, 30 story tower, 300 condos or so, and, um, take six years to sell. You know, we were consulting on it for probably two or three years before that. I mean, on average, we'd be working on a project for 10 years as a company, wow. as a development company, you know, we would be doing probably the land acquisition for that developer or if they hadn't purchased the land already, or if they had taking it through to sort of the pre-planning and planning stage, uh, working up all the plans, doing a lot of the consultancy work. So a lot of my earlier career was very granular. I'd be sitting with architects, cost consultants and sketching out plans and, and getting into the real nitty gritty of, you know, bathrooms and vanity units and all the fixtures and fittings, which I love because I love design. Um, but working on some of those projects, you know, um, I mean, one Barangaroo in Sydney, for example, is a project that is still selling today and was selling when I left Australia three years ago, but was, was, we started selling six, five, six years ago now, and it's still in market today. And, uh, again, that would have been two or three years of planning prior to that. So very much the same kind of germination period and over a billion dollars of real estate to sell. You don't sell that overnight. And I think as well, when you're selling real estate in the more prime parts of the world, whether it's Dubai, London, or even here, you know, you, you're not going to sell out a project straight away. There are only so many buyers who buy real estate at two, five, 10, $20 million, you know, and you, in even in major cities, that market is pretty shallow. You know, we talk about the amount of wealth flowing through these major hubs like Vancouver and elsewhere, but there's only so many people you can find to buy these very expensive homes. So you're just going to take longer to, to sell them. Yeah. What about the, the sales teams? Was it, this, is it different in London compared to Dubai? Melbourne, Vancouver? Um, I would say more so London, you saw people sitting on sites for long times. Yeah. Um, you didn't, 
what we see here is you you generally see teams switching out. You know, you, you're not going to you're going to see a launch team, and if you're in market for say nine months to a year, you know, probably not going to see the same salespeople nine ten months into the project because people want to get in and cannibalize the sales and, and move on. In London, it was different because. Uh, our salespeople were salaried people, and so they sat in marketing suites and, and presentation centers, and they might sell one every six weeks to two months. Now, it sounds incredibly daunting for most real estate people here, but actually that's the norm there. So I think, again, context is really important. I think if everyone had come off the back of a market in London where everything sold out in a couple of months, then they would expect to not be there. But for most people on a project, you know, you're getting into significant projects um, across London, they would be sitting in a presentation center for four or five years, just and selling week in, week out. At sales events I've been to in Hong Kong, the, the experience seemed really intense, you know, the, uh, compared to here. You know, there's a lot more sales people on a, on a sales floor. They love it really crowded. Uh, it's very busy feeling. Uh, it's chaotic. Um, hard closing. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly as well, because London is such an international market and you get such flow of capital outside and, in, and into the UK from places like Hong Kong and Singapore particularly, most, the majority of London projects I worked on, we would take out to Hong Kong and Singapore and it would be exactly that. You were in a, a very low ceiling hotel, uh, you know, the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong and yeah, the room, room pumped full of very, very uh, strong smelling perfume. And uh, it was very hot and you're sweating in your suit and trying to close on the floor. And it was, it was hard selling. Right. And I think as well, you understand that different cultures, different places sell to, in different ways. Right. We sell to different people in different ways. And I think there's much more of the aspect of coming in and trying to hard close people and moving on to the next deal. And it's just it's like a deal frenzy. Yeah. Um, but I definitely learned from somewhere like that that never judge a book by its, by its cover, because we would have people come in. Um, on a Sunday, we, we would have been there probably all day Saturday, all day Sunday selling. So 10 hours a day of just hard selling, sweating profusely in your expensive suit. And someone would come in, track suit, jeans, t-shirt, look like they'd just come off the street and they'd say, I'll take it. What do, what do you mean you'll take it? I'll take that $5 million home. Just, uh, I'll buy it. But I haven't even shown you the plan. I just, just give me the paperwork. Let's get on with it. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, who is this guy? Is yeah. this, you know, where's this money coming from? So, um, and also is, is, is very much the world that we live in now, I think, with the amount of wealth flying around, you should never expect it to be, um, you know, a 70-year-old in a fine suit walking into the presentation centre to sign the contract. You know, the wealth is so much more intergenerational now and is young, old. Uh, it's all different um, people from all over the world have, have, have made money in different ways. So I think you should uh, always treat people... Oh, clearly always the way that you would want to be treated, but also expect that anyone coming into a presentation center could be a potential sale. You just don't know. Yeah. What makes a great salesperson versus one that's, you know, not going to last over the long term? Anything about attitude or technique? Yeah, I think um, being inquisitive, asking lots of questions, trying to understand the motivation for buying. I think um, if I'm very candid, I think that we sell in a very generic way in real estate. Um, we don't really start tailoring the experiences to the individual. I think we expect that a, an advert is going to speak to every audience, which it never can. But for a salesperson particularly, I think asking lots of questions, being inquisitive, listening, not talking, um, and trying to educate people. I think in this market particularly, which is so much more difficult than it was even a year or two ago in Vancouver, it's trying to educate the buyer and not try and hard close them. Because the truth is, if you walk into a presentation center today and you know it's just you and some tumbleweed, you're not going to feel like you want to buy real estate. So it's more around 
you know, educating buyers, you know, what are you looking for? How can I help you? You know, have you thought about your finance? Um, because for a lot of buyers who are newer to the market, you know, mortgage rates seem sky high and they're not historically, if you look at the last 10, 20 years. Um, is the, is the bottom going to fall out of the market? Well, no, we haven't historically seen that in Vancouver. So why would you expect that to happen? And we see a lot of negative sentiment often in the press, which is great because it makes great clickbait stories. But the truth is it's a robust market. But for a lot of the realtors, particularly now, who've probably only worked in Vancouver, say the last five years, it's been a bull market. So trying to understand how to get around barriers to sale and understand people going, well, I don't think it's a good time to buy. If the realtor doesn't have an answer to that, then you're going to lose a deal. Yeah. Um, and also working hard. Yeah, it's very old fashioned, but picking up the phone, you know, it's very easy to send out a mail blast and just press click and just say, oh, hopefully people will turn up to the sales calendar. Those days are gone. And I think that you're going to learn a lot more in this market. The best, best realtors always perform in the toughest markets. It's very easy to open the doors and be um, a ticket booker, be someone who just opens up a contract, says, which one do you want? And if you don't want this one, I don't care because someone else will buy it. And I'll probably sell it for more. So go away. Why am I, why am I bothering with you? So it's about treating people respectfully, uh, asking the right questions, being inquisitive and making sure that you can work hard to get a deal done because you have to. Yeah. How do you want to, we're going to elevate the industry. I mean, through sales excellence and sales training, I'm excited to do that with you. Um, any aspects of that you want to share? Like uh, you, you touched on several already around work ethic. Is there anything uh, customization, you know, listenings or anything else that, you know, in your vision of, of how we could do a better job. Cause we're kind of like the front line where the interface between the public and an industry that we love that's been taking such good care of us. What do you want to do to make it better? I think our interaction with buyers needs to be better over the course of the contract writing period to when they actually get the keys. I think, oh, I think, after is, yeah, I think so. I think that it's, there is a, I think there's a, you know, if you go to most presentation centers, people are pretty slick when it comes to selling. They, yeah. You know, they're pretty good. They, they could be a bit better. And, and some of the things I've touched upon, they could certainly refine. But um, but ultimately, once they've closed or once you've closed someone on on the floor, most people never never hear from the realtor again for three years. And the amount of times that, are you know, you communicate with people, and I've seen this here in the industry, where you say, you know, which unit did I buy? Where's my floor plan? Yeah. I can't remember who my realtor was because I've not heard from them for two years. I yeah. don't remember who the guy was or who the woman was. Um, so we need to do a much better job at that. Ultimately, we are selling people probably their biggest purchase they'll ever make. And I think it just needs to be a much more curated journey along that. You need to communicate a lot more with them. You need to be as excited as they should be on their purchase. And I think it becomes this sort of quite perfunctory, sort of quite clinical close. You're like, okay, great. I've sold you the home. I've made my commission. I'll move on to the next person. And I think it needs to be more personal. It's difficult. It's difficult in pre-sale because, you know, I, I recognize that in resale, you know, you could be showing 10 properties to someone and taking them and touring them around the West side of Vancouver and, and showing them, and you're going to build up a relationship. You're going to understand who their kids are, the, the dog's name, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And you can build a much better personal relationship with those people than if it is in a pre-sale market where generally it's a bit more conversational, but you move on quickly. It's like, who are you? What do you want? What can I sell you? But I do think the, the missing element is definitely the customer care piece. And I think we can do a much better job with that. I agree. We can do a better job, but I, I envision it a little bit differently. I, I feel like there's a concept in customer service called no service. And it, it doesn't mean that they ignore people or, uh, um, you know, don't give them the information they need. In fact, you do such a good job giving them the information they have it so readily, so easily available to them that there's just not a need, uh, to be bothered with a phone call or certainly not a need for them to call anyone 
Uh, we're definitely not there yet, yeah. um, working towards it, but, uh, end of, end of the day, same result. People have everything they need. They yeah. feel well informed and they're up to date on everything. They know where to look. It sounds like a portal. And I know I'm a tech oriented person is maybe a personal opinion and I'm not even sure it's right. Um, I think certainly digitizing things and yeah. making, making the information readily available. Absolutely. I mean, look, everyone always uses the tester example, but you can, the fact that you can basically customize the car, get it delivered to your home without ever speaking to anyone, you can do it all online. I think there is, there is merit in that. I yeah. mean, there, there is the personal connectivity, which I think we all crave. I think COVID showed us that whilst we all loved being away from one another in our homes, um, you know, I think certain people wanted to get back to the office, certain people wanted to connect again. And we are about human connection. You know, a lot of the things that we take for granted today will be automated. We will see automated cars and we will see a very different way of living and working in the next decade, for sure. I think it's going to be exponentially grow from a from an AI perspective and the way that we interact with goods and services. But I still think there is that personal touch. I still think being able to relay the passion that hopefully you have for real estate and imparting that on a buyer and seeing the excitement in their eyes, whether it's a, a parent or a parents giving the keys to their children or signing off on a contract or being able to give them the deposit to buy their first home. There is a, there is a real need for that personal connection, I think, and building up a relationship. And like I said, in pre-sale, it is more difficult. It feels more transactional, but I think digitizing things, as you said, and, and making them as, as, tech forward as possible is great, but I still think there's that human element and uh, it's finding that middle middle ground. There still is right now, for sure, in the sale process. There's so many people trying to figure out how to organize the information that a prospective buyer would need to see so that they can just order their condo online and, and to save a whole bunch of kind of time and money and people and effort. Um, but it's, it's, I'm a tech oriented person and that is not going to happen for a while because it's, it's so big of a purchase. It's so, it's so personal. It's so much fun. Um, I just can't, uh, I mean, ordering a Tesla online is fun too. Um, but there, there's just something about it that I is, is open-minded as I try to be about that kind of thing. I just haven't quite been able to visualize, um, how to replace the experience of the human interaction part of the experience uh, completely with digitalization, especially yeah. within the sales part. Customer care, maybe. It would be weird though, if the sales part was really personal and really interactive, and then all of a sudden just, yeah. just kind of- See, <laughs> You get a robot coming to your house and there's your, the keys. There's your portal, yeah. bye-bye, bye. in four years. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. No. Plus there's a lot of untapped potential in uh, maintaining that relationship to see you know where, where else could go, yeah. what else they might want to buy. Yeah, I think, again, there's probably a missing element and we've probably chatted about this before, but I I lived in a um, a rental building by a big, big developer in Vancouver for two years in the West End and, uh, you know, they've got all my personal information. They, you know, I had to pre-qualify for the lease and, you know, they they had a lot of information on me. It was and a big you, lease too, wasn't it? It was a big lease, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, one bedroom in, in the West End and a new development is it's not cheap. And it was staggering to me. I never never heard from them. You know, this is a developer who has um, a decent portfolio of rental projects, but is mostly selling condos. Mostly and your, your rent could pay a mortgage. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was no communication with me over the two-year lease. Um, I left that to buy a property in Kitsilano. And so I was a buyer. You're a target market. I, was, I mean, couldn't have been a better target market yeah. for this developer. And yet I never heard from them in two years. They didn't ever ask me what my plans are after the lease. They didn't say, can we give you a credit towards one of our developments, which I probably couldn't afford to say the least, but uh, it might have helped and nothing. So there's definitely, there's definitely elements that are missing within that piece. And I think joining the dots a bit more 
understanding, for example, that a lot of the developers that we engage with are commercial developers as well. Maybe someone wants an office space who's buying into a condo. Maybe someone wants a rental. But ultimately, you know, you have to try and keep that within the family and whether um, you communicate with them digitally or whether you have that personal interaction. I do think that, that we could all do a better job of trying to interact with our customers in a more personal way and understand what their truly motivations are in life. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So yeah, you're so international. What, why, why have you put down roots in Vancouver? You could be, you could go any of all people, you could be anywhere in yeah. the world. I think Sydney was a very different experience to London. London is, um, an incredibly popular city. Um, and the lifestyle that we were afforded in Sydney was very much more about being in the outdoors, the beach life, um, much better work-life balance. London is a pretty intense city. You know, you sort of, I, again, I was working quite I would say old school um, real estate companies. You know, you were expected to wear a suit and tie and be at your desk at sort of 7.30 a.m. and you were there tethered to your desk till 6.30 p.m. and barely had time to grab a sandwich. And there was a lot of presenteeism. You had to wait for the boss to leave before you could leave. Um, working, for, ironically, for the same company. What do you Australia. call that, presenteeism? Presenteeism, yeah, Being just having to, having to be there, having to show your face, having to the boss going, oh, you know, my underlings are still here. So, you know, they're obviously working hard and you'd be desperate to leave to get to the pub. And, you know, you had to show face and make sure that, you know, people thought you were working incredibly hard, even though your, your work should certainly have been done by 6.30 p.m. if you've been at your desk at 7.30. Um, but living in Sydney was a better work-life balance for sure. And I think that, you know, Liz and I were living in London during the peak of COVID, during a lockdown in London where it felt like a very different city. It was yeah. like, it was like apocalyptic at times. I remember running through the central centre of London. I love running outside and um, it was a Tuesday afternoon and they just announced a lockdown in London where you were allowed to go out for exercise once a day. That was it. You weren't allowed to leave your home. Oh. And so I was running through the centre of London, running through Regent Street um, on a Tuesday afternoon. And there should have been hundreds of thousands of people. There wasn't a single person there. And it felt like oh, the zombies had got everyone. It's a movie set. It was absolutely, it was very eerie, but kind of quite beautiful at the same time. And I, you know, you look around at a great city like London, you know, culture and people and restaurants and bars, you take that all out, you take a step back, you're like, it's pretty urban. It's highly polluted. It doesn't feel very green. And you're like, why am I here? So you take the people out. Oh yeah. I mean, you take the people out of a, of a, yeah. of a fun city and it becomes like any other urban jungle. Right. And yeah. you think to yourself, well, is this really what I want? And yeah. so that natural landscape that Sydney, the beaches, I think Liz and I love being outdoors, running, hiking, biking, doing all the things that Vancouver affords you. And it's a beautiful, beautiful natural city. And I do think that you know, again, Vancouverites have it pretty good. It's a pretty good work-life balance, um, you know, and it's such a beautiful part of the world. Um, she's from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yeah. And I think uh, being in minus 40 in the winters was not particularly appealing. So for me, uh, I selfishly looked at the real estate markets and really it was a choice between Toronto and Vancouver. And I just thought Toronto, to me, um, is quite like a lot of North American cities in many ways. And if I was going to go somewhere else, I probably would go to New York, which I love, one of the great cities of the world. So for me, coming to Vancouver was a was a great medium, beautiful. I mean, we're sitting these our fantastic offices here in uh, in Gastown, and I'm looking over your shoulder at the, at the mountains and the ocean, and it's a pretty good place to be, to say the least. I think you you wake up most days, and I was running along the seawall yesterday, and I just had to sort of stop for a moment and take a step back and go, I'm pretty lucky to be here. Good for you, man. A lot of people don't do that. Yeah. A lot of people uh, complain, legit, you know, um, but I guess they could leave. 
you know, there's yeah. lots of other places. So. <laughs> hey, you know what? We don't have enough housing for everyone. So if they <laughs> want to leave, that's uh, music to my ears. Yeah, yeah. What are your what are your housing plans? Where do you what do you like now? You know the city. You've been here a couple mm. of years. What's uh, what part would you ultimately like to live in? Do you want a single family home? Or are you very urban downtown? Yeah, I, we love You're kits. kits yeah, we're in kits. Um, we're in that pocket of kits near the Greenway, um, which you know we knew Westforth pretty well from from kind of uh, going to the workout studios and the restaurants and and everything else along Forth. Um, but being in that kind of pocket um, around the Greenway is, is just lovely. Um, I'm a big fan of architecture, so I'm a big fan of Arthur Erickson. So if I could get into the Waterfall building, if you know anyone that can get me a significant discount, I will move there tomorrow. <laughs> um, I love, I love lots of different architecture. I have quite a, a, a sort of odd choice of architecture around uh, styling. I mean, I love. London is a city, obviously, with so many different periods of architecture, right? It's so rich in the tapestry of those buildings. But I love Art Deco buildings, but I love brutalist buildings. You know, a big trend in, in the UK in the 50s after the war was to build these sort of concrete monoliths. And so for me, Arthur Erickson's architecture is so beautiful. And I have to say that the Waterfall building is a particularly beautiful residential building. Um, you know, Vancouver is a brilliant place, but I think our architecture is is pretty lousy, and I, and I and I hope it changes. I I think to myself, what are the great buildings of this city? You know, you you go to many of the great urban centres of the world. Uh, you think of London, you think of New York, particularly, and there's so many iconic structures, whether they're bridges or buildings, uh, theatres, residential, commercial hubs. Um, I think Vancouver really struggles with architecture, and I you know you think of some of the um, there's this sort of hackneyed phrase, architects, you know, these sort of world renowned architects of the world, you know, the, the Renzo Pianos and the Richard Rogers and Santiago Calatravas and all these great architects, they're not here. And I wonder why. And I would hope that the next iteration of real estate here, particularly on the residential side, includes a lot more of that architecture. I know that Bose's 1515 is a really stunning piece of architecture. There's no question about that. I'd love to see more of that. Um, you know, we're, thankfully going to see some of the bigger architects coming to this city, which is fantastic. I think the Thomas Heatherwick um, proposed development on Alberni by Bosa is going to be stunning. Um, it just looks like a beautiful, beautiful building. Um, but we, we definitely struggle with architecture here. And I think you want to have a visceral reaction to architecture. I want people to walk down the street and go, I absolutely adore that building. It's so beautiful. And I want someone next to them to go, that's the most hideous building I've ever seen. You want that. You want that polarity of, of choices and polarity of opinion. One of the things I always say when you're walking in certain parts of, of Vancouver, maybe in the downtown core, you can walk past a bunch of residential buildings and they're just a bit blah. And you could, you could kind of go city block to city block and you turn to the person you're walking with and going, do you remember a single building we've walked past? Yeah. And they would say, no, not really. I think that, um, you know, you had Arno on um, recently, um, his Aperture building is beautiful. And there are definitely certain buildings here. I mean, actually the building we're in now, um, our headquarters on Alexander Street, I think is a beautiful piece of architecture. Um, and, you know, there's, there's- You know, this was really modern at the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 1909, yeah. the buildings had, you know, big cornices and a lot of decorative stuff hanging off. And, and this style was extremely modern. Yeah. But that polarizing thing is part of it too. I think that's, you know, uh, Big's design of- Vancouver house was yeah. polarizing. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I mean, it's a building I love. 
but I hope that there are people who have an opinion opposing to mine and say, I hate that building because I want that. Yeah. And you want, you, the Charleston, for example, you come over the bridge and, uh, you know, they've got these gaudy colours, um, you know, lots of green glass. And then you see this building with these bright colours coming out of the building. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I like the fact that people go, that's a hideous building or that's a beautiful building. Yeah, but I have an about. opinion. Yeah. Like, talk about it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think Vancouver, hopefully, as I said, in the next kind of iteration of, of pre-sale becomes a building that has, uh, or buildings, series of buildings that has a lot more bold architecture. Um, because that's what makes a city great, I think. Yeah, me too. I love it. A lot of people rip on West Bank, um, but I, I'm a fan. I, I just love it. The the projects that they're doing, that the, they're a gift to everybody that gets to look at them. Uh, and I just, I appreciate it so much. I couldn't agree more. And I think, again, whether you love or hate what they do, they, they again, are bold in their architectural choices. And I think there's going to be some great legacy buildings um, that are left to the city, which is what you want. You want, when you're a developer, I think one of the things you want to leave is an indelible mark on the city for good or ill, but hopefully for good, right? So you want yeah. it to be something that people talk to, that people are proud of. People take civic pride in great landscapes and great urban fabrics. And I think when you're walking through a city, people will often admire great buildings. And there is a pride in that. It's like, I come from the city that has this incredible architecture. And I think, I think when you look at bad buildings, um, you see bad behavior you see more crime, you see, I think, people who are more depressed. I think you don't see people who have as much joy for a city. If you have really great buildings and really great civic spaces, I think it just enlivens the population. And there is, a, as I said, there's a pride around that, but I also think that it encourages more development and encourages more people to come here. So I, you know, I would love to see more of the great architects. You know, Frank Geary does a building in downtown Vancouver. My God, people will talk about it. And also puts us on the map. I often think that Vancouver is still kind of seen as a bit of an outpost on the west side of the world. You know, if I speak to people in London and, and you talk about North America, people talk about New York, LA, maybe Toronto. I don't think many people would say Vancouver on their list of places no. to be. And I, I think it's a crying shame because um, we've got a beautiful city here and we've got a huge amount of densification that can still happen. You know, if people think this is a crowded city, you wait to what it looks like in 10 years time with the amount of immigration that's happening. Yeah. Tom Wright's a British architect, yep. a British person like yourself. Yep. He's got the uh, building called Curve. Mm. Um, and that, that should be cool. He did the Burj Al Arab. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I'm looking forward to the Curve. I think it's going to be a really great looking builder. Yeah. And again, more of that. I had a sneak peek at the sales center and it's, I saw the model and it does look beautiful. It yeah. actually looks better on the model than the renderings I've seen, Awesome, which is great. Cause that's not usually the case. Those models are not easy to build in a way that makes them look as beautiful as the renderers can do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're on the same page with that, man. I, I love the, uh, I love the architecture. I think it's a gift. One thing that cities could do a little bit better. We talk about it a lot on the show, but, um, you know, there's often an art contribution that's required of a developer and it often is this, um, silly obelisk or some sort of like piece of something that's stuck literally in the front near the front door. And it's often like comes off silly to me and it doesn't really look beautiful or it's just checking a box. It's an afterthought. And I think again, art is so important to a city. Again, Vancouver needs to have more public art. It needs to invest in that. Art makes such a difference to neighborhoods. It enriches neighborhoods. Uh, it brings them up. It encourages more people to go into an area, whether it's artisans or whether it's just businesses. And I think that 
it's not either or. It shouldn't be either or. It shouldn't be we have a beautiful building or a piece of art, and that art is often perfunctory and just like an obelisk, as you said, it doesn't look very interesting. Like, create bold art and create bold buildings. I mean, as as people who are involved in the sale of pre-sale units, you know, we often talk about designing from the inside out, and we want the spaces to feel like they are fit for purpose. But that shouldn't be to the detriment of the facades. Like, be bold, be interesting, put some colour in buildings, add fins, do curvature, you know, do something that is just really interesting visually, because I think that it makes a massive difference. And whether it's the ground plane or whether it's at the top of the building, I do think that the activation of streetscapes is often down to having better spaces built within them and having art and having them more activation at that ground plane. And I just don't think we do it that well at the moment here. I wish the art contribution could be recognized in uh, more expensive, more beautiful exterior facades and Absolutely. art like built onto the building, make the building look better. Every developer has to consider um, that a nice and beautiful design or an exterior facade costs more, right? And yet they have this line item on their budget for the obelisk and they have to live up to it. Yeah. Uh, that would seem like an easy one to fix. Awesome, man. Any, any plans for uh, any holidays soon? Yeah, actually. I, um, I'm going to take Liz to Japan, never nice. been, I'll go to Tokyo. <laughs> awesome. Tokyo is an absolutely crazy place. Tokyo is such a great place. You know, you look at somewhere like Tokyo and, uh, you know, people in Vancouver again say, God, this city is getting busy. It's not what it used to be. You should get them all on a plane and take them <laughs> oh, over yeah. to Tokyo. You know, world's largest city, 40 million people. You know, you've got to bear in mind, Tokyo for 40 million people is the same landmass. It's 0.02% of the landmass of the whole of Canada. It has a bigger population than Canada. <laughs> yeah. Take people there. And I'll tell you something, it works. You know, you, sure, you go to Shibuya Crossing and, you know, it's crazy. There's tens of thousands of people everywhere and it seems like madness. But actually... If you traverse most of Tokyo, it doesn't ever feel like you're surrounded by huge crowds. And so it's a city that works and uh, it's a mind boggling place. I would encourage anyone listening to this to go over to Japan. Um, the people are incredibly friendly um, and, uh, and the food, oh, the food's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's one of those places where you genuinely feel like a tourist, a, a foreigner, because nothing is in English. They don't care to speak English. They, most of them don't speak very good English at all, but they try to, God bless them. And they... You know, they'll try and, I remember very distinctly when I was there a few years ago that, um, you know, you, you try and get into a restaurant, often they're in the sort of fifth or sixth floor of a tower building. Now, I don't know what five or six is in, in Japanese. So you'd ask someone in a random shop, they close their store for you and take you by the hand and sort of walk you to that place. Incredibly hospitable, very proud of their nation as well. So beautiful place. And we'll probably head to um, Osaka as well and a couple of other uh, smaller places in Japan. Um Hoping to get to Israel. My sister's just moved to Tel Aviv with her husband and their two kids. So that, uh, that'll be a great, great place. Tel Aviv is somewhere I've visited a couple of times before and it's a really fun city. It's really great. Um, real melting pot again of, uh, I would love to go people. there. It's a real fun party city as well. Um, and then probably head back to London for Christmas. Haven't been back for a couple of years and, um, you know, London at Christmas time feels very Christmassy. If that makes sense to people, it feels cold. There's a, um, you know, there's a do lots of adornments of baubles around the city and yeah. uh, lots of mulled wine and, and uh, winter markets. It's a, it's a fun place to be at I Christmas can, time. I can hear and taste and feel that when yeah. you describe it. It's it sounds fun. awesome. Yeah, well, uh, Israel's got a really cool entrepreneurship uh, yeah. movement happening too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... My brother-in-law is very much that. He's very tech-focused. He's set up a, lot, a number of businesses. Um, he is a very bright guy. And uh, and actually, I um, worked 
briefly for an Israeli developer actually in London, and they had a huge gambling business. Um, the, the company I worked for was called Labtech. I was head of residential there before I actually moved to Vancouver. Um, and Playtech was their other business, big Israeli tech entrepreneur, and he'd sold that for many billions of dollars um, not that long ago. So another interesting guy to work for. But the Israelis have a very entrepreneurial um, mentality. It's an interesting place to be. Yeah, yeah I'd love to go. Well, thanks for sharing your story, man. I love it. Pleasure. I'm so grateful to have you as part of the team and uh, to have caught up with you today. It was awesome. Thanks for sharing with everybody. Thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.